This evening I would like to offer some reflections on the theme of death. Reflecting upon this topic is regarded as one of the primary themes of Dharma contemplation. And the Buddha spoke often and regularly of the importance of doing so. In his own journey, for the Buddha, before he was to leave his worldly life, it was the encounter with death and its implications in the form of the heavenly messenger regarded in the tradition as that which is the basis for our own journey likewise. The noble search that the Buddha undertook, having encountered and begun to face the reality of mortality, of his own mortality, plays a part also for ourselves, reflecting on our own motivation, our own intention, whether in our lives or on retreat here, to remember that this is something which is inextricably part of our reality, that what we call our existence cannot be separated from the fact that it is not forever. And so, although our society makes some considerable effort to try and cover this up, to try and avoid us or anybody, in fact, bumping into the rather uncomfortable, unpleasant and untidy reality. For a Dharma practitioner, encountering this should actually be understood as good fortune. About 10 years ago, when the centre in England, where I'm closely involved and have been for quite a number of years now, was uh, moving from a smaller um, location to looking for a larger venue, we were very fortunate to be able to purchase an old convent. And within the convent, there was a small graveyard. And it was very interesting because the other people who were trying to buy this convent and wanted to make one of them wanted to make it into an old people's home and someone else was going to make a holiday resort out of it, they really didn't like the idea that there was a small graveyard in the middle of the grounds. And yet for us, it was a blessing. It was a precious thing to have. Because that reminder of death, of mortality, of the the temporiness, the transience of our stay in this realm, in this form, is something that speaks to us in a way that perhaps very little else can. And there are many ways this reminder comes to us. If we see, if we look in our life, perhaps in circles very close to us, or perhaps we have to look a little distant, a little further afield, we nonetheless will see people we know or are close to who have encountered the loss of someone near. Perhaps and perhaps for most of us, it's that we ourselves have encountered that, the loss of someone near. Or simply as we walk down the path or onto the road seeing a, small creature that's come to its end at the wheels of a car. And we can just allow ourselves to be open to what that means. Because we think of it as something far distant, and yet it isn't really. Every day, people who thought they would be still here, are not. Every day it happens like that. Sometimes we have some warning. And again, we could regard ourselves as fortunate in that circumstance. But 
quite often we don't. And occasionally there's a sort of a, a brush with that reality that just wakes us up. A, a friend was telling me, I remember, of how he was just in a room, just doing something in a building, as one does most days of one's life. And as he walked out of the room, the ceiling fell in. It was a fine building. No one expected it. It wasn't the whole ceiling, but a large chunk of masonry just fell out of the ceiling and demolished the place where he'd been standing just moments before. And something about that just shook him to his very core. Perhaps we have had such experiences or been close to others who have. Something about allowing ourselves to be in touch with the vulnerability of the human condition is actually very powerful. Because although we all know that we are subject to accident, to illness, to aging and inevitable death, we somehow manage to live our lives as though we hadn't really understood this. It's so easy to do that. There's the, the stanza in the, uh, in the Indian, great Indian spiritual classic, the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna is in conversation with Arjuna, Arjuna being the hero, and Krishna, in this case, is charioteer, charioteer representing wisdom, is asked by Arjuna, with your great and vast wisdom, what is, the, what is the greatest miracle that you see in this world, in this realm of existence? And Krishna responds, he says, the greatest miracle that I see is that while people see all around them others dying, they do not believe it will happen to themselves. And so the Buddha recognizing this also, encouraged practitioners to really make this a concrete reality as a contemplation, as part of our practice, to spend time in charnel grounds where in the days of the Buddha, dead, berries were, dead bodies were left to slowly decompose, rot and eventually turn to dust. To sit and look at this, and to know that this is the eventual result or the eventual outcome that this body will encounter. That we don't kid ourselves about this. To contemplate, this will happen to me. My body will not escape this. There's a, a wonderful epitaph, epitaph on a gravestone in Europe, actually in England, where this reflection is expressed rather poetically. It says on the stone above someone's grave, their final communication, it says, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Remember, as you pass by me. A few years after we purchased the new Gaia house, one of the aspects of our agreement to purchase was that the remaining nuns of the order who'd, who'd now left, but whose uh, fellow nuns had many of them been buried there, that there, it was part of the deal that they could continue to be buried in the graveyard. And we had, while I was on retreat there, a very simple burial, funeral service took place. And it was very interesting. After a small piece of earth had been dug up and the, the coffin laid within it, and the earth re returned, the soil returned, I was walking up and down outside the graveyard and just contemplating this rather small displaced lump of earth that was sticking up slightly above the grave. And just it was like that's what the body was displacing. This body was in the earth, but what was left to view was just a small lump of earth sticking up. 
and just really trying to feel into what does that mean that this body will simply at some time in the future displace a little earth and that will be its its final rest it will come to this inevitably and unstoppably contemplating in this way allowing this in this fact this reality actually asks us to look at our life to not take it for granted it really gives so much energy to spiritual practice to meditation it's not about becoming gloomy or macabre or thinking oh no it's you know we're all going to die how miserable it's much more about sensing the preciousness of what it means to be alive we recognize we connect with preciousness when we understand something is not forever and only in so far as we kid ourselves that it is do we treat it in any way casually or without respect or is something other than remarkable mysterious and profoundly precious this life this human birth within which we have the remarkable good fortune to hear the dharma to be able to practice the dharma so rare this is in life and contemplating death gives us a perspective on what really matters so much of our life and our practice we can see our minds get entangled with what in some ways are not the most important things and we know that we know that what our minds obsess about at times are not the most important things but something in our mind doesn't know that something in our mind hasn't really got that clear And so contemplating this actually helps us to get clear. Don Juan in the uh books by Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan the uh shaman and wise man of uh of this particular tradition that originates from from this continent. He speaks of living with death as your advisor and it's a wonderful image to actually allow as he says the the fact of your death to inform your life and one might say the fact of my death you know listening to the fact of my death I haven't died yet you know slow down there's no rush but the fact of your death can be understood and the it's the only thing that's certain with regard to the future we don't know when we don't know how but everything else is only maybe breakfast tomorrow maybe meditation tomorrow maybe good samadhi bad samadhi maybe tomorrow the next day the next year or decade what happens unknown but this we know and it's like this wonderful teaching by ajahn chah when he spoke of a cup and he said i have this cup i use it but if it drops and shatters i'm not upset because i know that one day it will drop and be shattered it's a lovely cup i really like it i don't want it to break but one day it will break and so i relate to it as if it's already broken the cup is already broken it still it doesn't mean we sort of dismiss it or we we treat it like a broken thing in some way it's no use to us it's more that we understand this is its nature to actually understand that it is the nature of this body and mind as we know it to come to an end is to actually be able to see that so much that's rather petty that's rather unimportant in the greater scheme of things doesn't need to entangle the energy of our life and our mind in the way that it does and don juan speaks of living close to the truth of our death as a way of ending the what he describes as the accursed pettiness that plagues human beings we see how much we can get irritated by a little bit of noise or the fact that things aren't quite the way we want them to be or the meal isn't quite what we wanted or enough or whatever 
And yet these little things are, are so insignificant. How we can how we can generate anger and annoyance and irritation and hatred and judgment towards other human beings for their perhaps undoubted limitations or faults. I mean, no one's perfect. We can point out the imperfections of another, even the harmful actions of another, and feel that a justification to closing our hearts to them. But if we actually if we actually acknowledge that we're all in the same boat, it does something. There's a very touching report of a, a survey that was done in a death row workshop in Texas, a prison in Texas, where the patients were some of the toughest and hardest and it would seem most violent and maybe even uncaring people that had done acts of extreme violence or harm to end up in this tragic situation. And yet people observing them living together, working together, when they were put in a conducive environment, a supportive environment, observed that they actually seemed ra remarkably kind and tender towards each other. These rather hard-bitten, tough characters. And asking some of them about it, why it was. When most of the prisons, the, the atmosphere was so, so really filled with a sense of aggression and danger. Why it was different here? And the response that came back clearly again and again was simply, no, we're on death row. We know, each of us knows that we're all going to die. And in the face of that knowledge, our anger, our irritation, it somehow doesn't make sense anymore. The Buddha once said to a group of his followers who were fighting, bickering, in his rather, the, sort of the, the language of the, the way the tradition records it is sort of like stabbing each other with verbal daggers, kind of quite evocative of, of something perhaps rather nasty. We would not think maybe that would happen amongst uh, sort of the monks and the nuns of the order who are practicing the precepts and developing the heart. And likewise, we think maybe it shouldn't be happening here where we're being mindful, practicing loving-kindness and compassion, equanimity. And yet we see sometimes in our hearts and our minds, strong negativity can arise. And the Buddha says, in response to this, knowing you will die, how can you quarrel? Knowing you will die, how can you quarrel? That's not to say that quarrels don't happen. But if we reflect on our reality, somehow it takes the heat out of it, the urgency, the rigidity. And likewise, it, it sheds light on our relationship to things, to that which we own. Generosity is born and nourished by recognizing that what we have, we only have temporarily in any case. And the prophet Khalil Gibran reflects on this. And he, he speaks of giving, of generosity. And he says, when people ask of you, give, give freely. He says, give now so that the season of generosity will be yours rather than that of your inheritors. What we don't give will be taken. And perhaps one of the sweetest things we can do with that which we have is to share it. Hoarding it doesn't make sense in the light of death. And death really is the ultimate underlying, underlining, sorry, and equally the underlying recognition within the implications of change and unsatisfactoriness, that we see all things are unreliable. 
this very body and mind in coming to an end cannot be that upon which we seek to rest our life. Taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha as something which we can take, can bear our life, can hold our life. This is deepened as we allow ourselves to touch into the truth, the reality, and the implications of our mortality and the mortality of all things. Encountering this heavenly messenger, in fact, encountering, encountering any of the heavenly messengers, can shake us out of our complacency, the sense of putting things off, delaying. When I was in my early 20s, I was working in a professional environment and really unhappy, really didn't enjoy it. Knew very clearly I did not want to do this with my life. And yet I was really afraid to leave the security of establishing a profession and a livelihood and all of that. And then my dearest friend from childhood, due to a rather tragic surgical mistake that really didn't have to happen, uh, died. And it shook me to my very core. And in the, in the death of my friend, the immense sadness that that brought to me was an immense gift also because it gave me a very clear teaching long before I'd encountered the Dharma. But it gave me a very clear teaching that said, do it now. Don't wait. Don't put off what is important to you until some time when it's going to be safer or easier or whatever, which is what I was doing. It said, do it now. And in that way, he gave me an immense gift for which I'm eternally grateful to him. What would we do if we knew that today was the last day of our life? What would we have done differently today if we knew that today was to be that day? Because really our life could be understood as the preparation for our dying. We talk about making a livelihood. But actually, we could equally talk about making, the word doesn't really work, a deathlyhood. But it's the same principle, the sense of what we need in order to die well is perhaps equally what we need in order to live well. Plato was asked in his last, the last days of his life, what advice do you have? What would you say from all the learning that you've and all the wisdom that you've developed. And Plato responded, he said, you want my advice? I say, practice dying. Practice dying. What does that mean for us? First of all, it means to look at the way we live, how we act, to see that refrain from causing harm living by the precepts that we've chanted together today, this evening. Living by the precepts is a foundation for well-being that allows us to live and to die with no regret. That doesn't mean there may not be sorrow or remorse for things that we have done that maybe were unwise, that were born out of foolishness, blindness and reactivity but that we understand that we've committed our intention so far as we're consciously able to do so to not causing harm. Without expecting perfection, without demanding somehow that we make no effect on the world because to live in this world we will affect it, we will impact it, it cannot be other than this. The only way we can avoid affecting this world is to take ourselves out of it. And that will affect this world, so we won't succeed. But no regret. It's not some lofty, sort of invulnerable place. It's the sense of having done one's best to live one's life 
in a spirit of not causing harm. And thereby allowing oneself to come to the end of one's life with a sense of lightness and an honoring of the goodness of that intention. Likewise, we would give care to what we could call completion, coming to closure with those things that perhaps have been difficult in our life, finding the space for forgiveness. Which doesn't mean we consent to the continuance or the repetition of something harmful, but that we just let go of the shadow of anger that we otherwise carry on our hearts, that we actually see that it's a gift to ourselves to let go. My grandfather died just a couple of months ago, aged 94. And he'd gone through a rather horrible and acrimonious divorce with my grandmother about 10 years ago when they were both in their 80s, involving pushing her out the door and slamming it in the middle of the night and not letting her back in. My mother had to find somewhere else for her to live. And it took quite, it was, it was incredibly difficult and painful what happened. And yet there was something really precious and beautiful that happened in the last couple of years where they've made their peace again. And in his last days, my mother was with him, filled with love, although he'd done this really horrible thing to her mother. And without forgiving or without condoning the behavior that it was possible, and partially because of seeing his approaching frailty, that she realized she did not want to die with the hatred of him still in her heart. This is something that's important for us to look at when we speak of cultivating loving kindness, of exploring those places where the heart is closed and hardened to another or to ourselves. We see that we don't want to carry this with us. We don't want to take this beyond this life. And so we can be encouraged, supported and inspired to work with the opening of our heart. In terms of completion, there's also something about really having said to those people we care for that we do. That we've actually allowed those people we would want to know that we love them to know that. For many years after we were together and fell in love and got married, my wife and I, Catherine and I, we would make a practice of saying when one of us set off, as we one or the other of us often was, traveling and teaching, to say, I hope I see you again. Just to remember when we parted that it wasn't guaranteed that we would see each other again. And there's something of a poignancy in that that it's easier not to do. To just let's pretend we're for sure it's going to, we'll come back and just say, I'll see you in a week or whenever. But there's something very tender and beautiful about just allowing that moment to hold the preciousness, the caring, and the fragility of what we have. Reflecting and contemplating in this way, we also find that we more naturally, almost without it making, being such a big, without making something of it, it's sort of organic or natural that we would live for now, we would live where we are. We wouldn't be living in the future. We wouldn't be making an uncertain future so predominant in what we give importance to. Without dismissing the need to take care of things we need to organize or plan or address with regard to the future. But the amount of time and energy it occupies for us would not be the same. And in terms of what really was important, perhaps we would 
more fully embrace and understand the words of Stephen Levine in his book, A Year to Live, we're in reflecting upon what would be truly important. He says, he comments, and very, very beautifully he says, love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And it's kind of, I, I love it because, so we think of rational and emotional or heart qualities and mind qualities as somehow different things. But actually, that love is the only rational act of a lifetime. Of course, many actions come out of it, but that being the place from which it comes, that's the only thing that makes sense in the end. We know that. And so in this way, the contemplation of death informs our life, actually makes it alive, and asks us, encourages us, almost demands of us, that we look deeply, that we inquire, that we investigate what this is that we call being alive, that we otherwise take for granted. Because what is death? What do we mean when we talk about that? that word. We don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about it. If we did, by definition, it wouldn't be such an issue. And what we can see, if we look at it, if we attempt to look at what this is about, what we see is it's an absence of a reference point. That's what it is. It's an absence of a reference point for the sense of self, for I. And that's scary. That's threatening because that whole sense of me, of self, of I, can't really go to the place where there's no reference point for it. And one way or another, pretty much everything that we are afraid of, when we identify with fear, when we get caught by fear, when the sense of self arises identified with and configured by fear, at some level in the end it all comes back down to that fear of death or the, the fear of the absence of a reference point around which that sense of self can configure, can arise, can attempt to validate or substantiate or continue its existence. And yet, again, we don't know what this is that we're talking about, that we're reacting to. And perhaps this is not the death we should be afraid of. The real death, what we should really be afraid of, if we want something to be afraid of, the real danger is living our life on autopilot living our life unconsciously, no longer looking at what it is, clearly. The Buddha spoke of this when he said that mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. So we're not being mindful and attentive simply in order to see and understand, although of course that, just to see and understand the nature of our experience, that's part of it. But it's also because actually, perhaps and hopefully, we've realized the preciousness of this consciousness that we can engage, that we can nourish, that we can develop, that we can deepen that is the aliveness. That when it's not there, we're simply replicating what's already happened. And we're not really fully alive. So what do we face? What do we actually 
use this opportunity for? We can't enter our death. Not at least sitting here, I can't. We don't know what that is. But what we can do, the only death, in a way, that we can confront right here and now is the entry into the unknown. The willingness to die to our past, which is gone. It doesn't exist. It's just not there anymore. To let go of the fascination for the future, because it hasn't happened. And likewise, it's not sitting there around the corner waiting for you to turn around and pick it up. It's just not there. To die into this moment. To just be this that is now. Not an easy invitation. Perhaps not a welcome one. Why is it not easy to let go in this way? There's that sense of loss, of that which we've made important. And death, as a metaphor, and as an actuality, when we encounter it, it evokes grief. It evokes loss. This is inescapable. Much as we might wish to not have to meet this in life, it's part of life. Having entered into birth, there is no other option apart from at some point having to enter death. And this touches us profoundly and deeply. It's not something easy to open to. I heard some years ago a story that just really speaks to what this is what, and how hard it is to go here for us. And it involved a, uh, a man who was a, a friend of, or a couple who were friends of someone I know. And the woman, the wife, was on a plane from flying from Geneva to Canada that crashed. And it seems this uh, woman in the plane at the time, they realized they were being given the crash and the instructions like, you know, put your head into crash position, brace position, and she realized, we're going down. This plane, they could tell. The people were screaming. There was panic breaking out. And she just thought, well, looks like we're going down. She got out her phone. You know, hang the regulations. Say you're not allowed to use things. She rang her husband. Her husband had had a funny feeling minutes before, got up, unable to sleep, and taken the dog for a walk. She rang and got the answer machine. And when I contemplate this, I'm like, what do you do there? It's almost like, maybe that was a mercy that he wasn't there, because what's going to happen? You're going to be on the phone? Who's going to hang up? And so she left a message. I don't know what she said. That, But one could only imagine it's something like, we're going down, I love you. What else do you say? And that that's in that situation recorded on a little piece of tape in someone's answer machine. Like that, that just, for me somehow it seems to cut right to the sense of, oh, wow, that hurts. And, and that's not even my story, that's their story. And yet somehow in that I think it touches us because it's not just their story, it is our story. It's part of the story of being human, of being alive. And entering, being willing to open to this territory is to be willing, requires us to be willing to open to this, that, that we would feel so keenly, so deeply, so poignantly in the depth of our heart and being. 
And to not be afraid of that, to not turn away from that. Because in that, we actually encounter the depth of our life. And it can speak to us from that place where we're no longer afraid of how deeply, how keenly it cuts into our being. And what it touches in us, I believe, is not just the fact that we all share in this loss through our own experience of the loss of a loved one or the sense we have of knowing that one day it will happen. But perhaps even deeper than that, the deeper loss is our loss of connection with with, with the truth of life, with the, the deepest essential nature of existence. The sacred, the divine, we could say. Without making it into something, but that understanding, that truth that is lost when we take birth in unconsciousness. That is lost when we forget or somehow lose touch and we seem to have done so with what's actually going on. Death asks us to learn to let go. To let go because one day everything will be taken. And living our life trying to hold it is much less satisfying, nourishing and free than letting, living our life having released it. To not hold on, to not grasp, This is the condition from within which life can speak to us most deeply. Truth can be revealed to us most clearly. To not hold on is to expose ourselves not just to the grief of loss, but to the revelation of the deathless. So what are we asked to do here? As we continue to develop mindfulness, concentration, loving-kindness, equanimity, investigation, and many other qualities, moment by moment, day by day, at the same time as we're engaging in this practice and this process, as you are, we're also being asked to open, to open ourselves to the unknowable, ungraspable nature of existence and to see how our unwillingness to do that out of fear, out of the need to somehow configure a solid sense of identity, somehow create a place which we can attempt to take refuge in but which we can't because it's always changing. It's always slipping through our fingers. That in doing that, we're actually continuously taking birth and dying. And that actually what's asked of us in our practice is to not take birth. This is what the Dharma teachings point to. To not take birth in relationship to our experience which is what happens when we identify with it, when we claim this to be what I am. Or equally, when we take birth in a relationship to our experience by somehow positioning ourselves apart from it and saying, no, I'm not that, which equally is a location. And simply the negative or inverse side of the same process. To neither be defined by becoming or not being that which we experience. This is what it means to not take birth. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was once asked about undertaking practice 
And in some ways it seemed he was speaking about the spiritual life in general and maybe he was even speaking about birth and death because he said, hmm, with this question about undertaking spiritual practice, he said, hmm, best not to begin. Having begun, best to finish. <laughs> Having taken birth, when we frame it in relationship to that, we've begun. And then best not to have any regrets that we've begun. But to see, what is it to not be born in relationship to experience? We seek, we think we seek freedom from death, but in fact, we don't. Freedom from death is not actually going to serve us. Having been born, this body-mind process will die. That's so. But freedom from birth, what is this? Ajahn Amaro, one of the senior monks in the, uh, the Western Thai monastic tradition, uh, who's one of the abbots of uh, Bayagiri Monastery in California at this time. Some years ago, he was at a uh, sort of interdenominational uh, meeting, and someone asked him about the, uh, the Buddhist and particularly the Theravadan Buddhist view on sort of contraception, abortion, sterilization, and all of this. And he, he said, with regard to all of these things, and it was, you know, what's, what, what's your view about birth control and all of this? He said, well, as I understand the Buddhist teachings, it's all about rebirth control. <laughs> so what that means for us in our practice is to see where our minds tend to try and take birth. Look at that process, notice it, see how we get bound by it and how in seeing it, and not buying into it, nor struggling with the fact that it happened, but just seeing it, we actually are released. In dying in that moment, we actually begin to open to something that is not of the order of things that are born and die. When we don't take birth, we can discover that which is not born. opening to the fact that this life is unfolding, is manifesting, is revealed, moment by moment, one experience after another. Without so much focusing on or trying to find our home or our identity in the experiences themselves, but simply recognizing the fact that they're arising at all. Allowing ourselves to attune to the we could say the space or the, the process or the, simply the truth that this is happening within which this is happening. What is revealed in this? When we take hold of no thing, when we push away no thing, when we give nothing the authority to define us as being what we are or what we are not, where does that leave us if we're willing to rest in that place? The Native American elder Red Hawk speaks to this in his poem, The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. He says, we have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, 
or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you stealing everything in sight but only left holding a bag full of bones. It's not a trick, of course. It is the art that we practice in the Dharma. The art of letting go. Of not holding on. Of not identifying with. Not taking birth in this body and mind. And in doing so, to discover the heart where we cannot be taken, where death takes the bones and the bag therein, but not that which is discovered, that which is revealed, that which the Buddha spoke of as the deathless. So let's sit quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.